There's nothing to be scared of. Welcome to the Greens and Blues 14er podcast. This episode, Zach invents a new kind of fruit. I figure out what it means to get caught by snow in June. And we talk about the 10 basic essentials for hiking 14ers. So Zach, we're talking about the 10 basic essentials of hiking a 14er. But before we get into that, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Eric. How does today find you? It finds me good. I think this alien cold bronchitis thing is finally waning a bit. So I think I'm finally on the up and up. But you you had a fun adventure a couple weekends ago with your family, yeah? I did. We went to the um, Harry Potter Forbidden Forest in North Dallas, so near Denton, Texas. That sounds awesome. It was actually really cool. I'm always a little skeptical of stuff that's marketed to kids, but and I was really skeptical when I saw the price tag for this thing, but <laughs> yeah. it was something else. They took a an entire like walking nature trail and they lit it up like Harry Potter's Forbidden Forest. And they put stuff in there like Hagrid's hut. And oh my gosh. Like the car, the Weasley family car that has a yeah. mind of its own. Yeah, and, yeah, like, yeah. The spiders. And they have stuff where you like, I don't know how they do it, but you you cast a Patronus spell and then on this... LED screen that's kind of in the woods, like your Patronus appears. So like, if you really yell it out, like expecto Patronum, you'll see like a unicorn marching away in the woods. No way. I think every kid that's ever seen the Harry Potter movies has always wanted to cast a Patronus spell. Not just every kid, dude. (laughs) Were you doing it too? Yeah. I uh, yelled that loud and proud. That's Um, awesome. That was fun. And then we, so we did that and my daughter Cassia, she got like got all jacked up on sugar beforehand and it was fun <laughs> and they give you like the you could get like a special deal they give you like a cup for like butter beer oh the butter and, beer is good isn't it yeah so we did that and then afterwards we went to i've never been to one of these before i think they're like an american rite of passage for families at least in the midwest it's called great wolf lodge oh man you did a great wolf lodge huh I've never even seen one before, much less been to one. I mean, for those of you that don't know or don't have children or haven't lost your minds, <laughs> it's basically like if you were to take like two holiday ends, smash them together, and then crunch them up against an indoor water park and mm-hmm. uh, arcade, and then add like all the schlocky American kind of Vegasy type, uh, like the carpeting looks like Vegas. Oh, and man. It was something else. Um, That's wild, isn't it? Yeah, especially if that was your first time. This, I'll probably on my dying bed remember this, but we, <laughs> we walk in and it's like 9, 9.30. We're all kind of tired. We've been been going hard. Uh, my wife is checking in, so it's just me and my daughter hanging out. And in the foyer, there's like this little puppet show going on. Now they're like robot puppets. They're not operated mm-hmm. by like people. Right. And it's got like a talking owl and then some other animals. There's all these children. They're all in their jammies and they're all on the floor. And this thing is so loud. And, <laughs> oh, and it's just like all these lights and everything. 
a lot of talking, talking. And then there would be this song they would sing that would go, there's nothing to be scared of. And that like got burned in our heads. Oh my God. So that's now a joke. Like every day when I drop my daughter off at school, I say, you know, have a great day, sweetie. And oh, oh, I forgot to tell you one thing. <laughs> She'll be like, what dad? I'll be like, there's nothing to be scared of here. <laughs> She's like, dad. dad. Oh, come on. <laughs> so as you're watching this, you're wondering what was in that butterbeer that we were drinking back in Harry Potter's, man. <laughs> sugar. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Sugar. Besides all the sugar. Yeah. Yeah, so we we did that. We got up the next morning. We did like the water parky type stuff. They mm-hmm. have cool slides and stuff. Oh, that yeah. was fun. And then there's a ropes course. We did the ropes course. Rather, my daughter and I, my wife watched. We did the ropes course. That was a ton of fun. Wow, you really yeah, did. Was, you hit it hard, didn't you? Holy cow! Yeah, Simpsons go hard. We, yeah. <laughs> we we got home and we were exhausted, and we all had like a mild cold. So I think we did it right. <laughs> That's how you know you you had a lot of fun. You had the right amount of fun. We had the, You're sick we, when you get home. We had the GWL experience, my friend. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> GWL is fun until it's not fun. There's one in Denver, yeah? Oh, yeah. We've been there a handful of times. Did anybody... So we had this experience one time. Did anyone poop in the pool? <laughs> no. It sounds no. like a... What is it, Caddyshack, where they put the baby Ruth? Oh, yeah, with the, the baby pool. Ruth. Yeah, it wasn't the uh, baby Ruth. That was the real deal. We were, <laughs> no. yeah, so you missed out on that kind of fun. Oh, man, that would have been dreadful. No, yeah. no, that did not happen. But oh, that's a lot of humanity floating around in those pools. Oh, gosh. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> that's putting yeah. it nicely. God bless you for doing that multiple times, Eric. That's. Oh, well. And God bless your checkbook. That was not. That's, oh, well. That we, was not we cheap. T- we have to find the deals. Like it's not spring break. It's not the weekend. We go like during the week, like when there's a deal and that we don't have to spend Tuesday in October. Yeah, exactly. Well, it's also, you guys had fun and and yeah, multiple things in the Dallas area. That's awesome. Yeah, it was was fun. I don't go to Texas often, but when I do, I I go, (laughs) I stay at the Great Wolf Lodge. That's right. Yeah. And you do it right. (laughs) No. I should give a shout out to my lovely wife, Kinsey, who sleeps cold. And for some reason, they had the air conditioner on in early November in our room. And I slept okay and my daughter did, but my wife froze. So oh my gosh, I should at least note that not it wasn't happy fun times for, for all oh, of us. Wow. Well, especially in, in Dallas, they have to crank it up that high in November, huh? It's that warm and, outside. And it's uh, Texas. They love their indoor uh, air conditioning. Yeah. Like I keep suppose. it cold. Yeah, I guess so. So what are we talking about today, Eric? Well, Zachary, we're talking about the 10 basic essentials when we're hiking on the mountain. One thing I would say is most of this advice is for hiking mountains in the summer. Mm -hmm. If if these are, if you're doing winter hiking, it's a whole different ballgame. And some of this kind of general logic may apply, but this, we're talking about summer hiking of 14ers, which is what most folks do. And when we say summer, we really mean early June through late September, early October. If you're going to hike in the winter, you're going to have to know, uh, as Liam Neeson would say, a whole different set of skills. (laughs) You're going to need to know how to look at uh, slopes and understand avalanche danger. And you're going to have to have a few more tools in your toolkit. But this is for what most folks do, which is quote unquote, good weather hiking. 
Exactly. Yeah. Don't do what my buddy Travis and I did several years ago when we tried to hike Mount Holy Cross in early June and the gate was closed to the Tiguan Road and we didn't get the hint. So we carried our tent all like three, four miles up the road along with our packs, camped out overnight, got up early, hiked up to the trailhead only to find like a foot and a half of snow at the trailhead. And Travis looks at me and says, well, looks like we're not hiking Holy Cross today. And we had to bail before we even started. So good call. That wasn't even on our list, but I think it's a, it's definitely a strong honorable mention. If you want summer conditions, make sure you're going kind of mid to late June-ish through kind of mid-October-ish. Otherwise, you're going to need another half dozen pieces of gear with you to, to do some winter hiking. For sure. So we have a list of 10 essentials here. Mm -hmm. What's, if this was a numbered list, what would be number one? I'm going to look at the list. Number one says, start early. Zach, did you write this list? Start early does not sound like something that I would have expected from Dr. Zach Simpson when it comes to hiking a 14er. Early is relative, my friend. (laughs) <laughs> I was that's fair <laughs> I was told as a child so this that this is uh, my dad shout out to Gary Simpson here it was just listed as an article of faith as a child that you start hiking right before the sun comes up that's okay. that's when you start hiking all right and I was just kind of given that from on high as a commandment is there a reason why you would start so darn early Eric Oh, yeah, there's, I think, a few. I think in a previous episode, you had actually outlined a reason or two not to start too early for fear of maybe spooking animals or not being able to see your way necessarily. But for me, I think getting up early, you reduce your risk of bad weather affecting your hike. And because storms, particularly on 14ers, are more likely to happen in kind of late morning, early afternoon, if any time. And so, and this will get to one of our other essentials down the road in terms of, of weather, but starting early kind of helps you have a good a good chance of missing bad weather as well as having enough time to get down and being able to get back to the trailhead before, let's say, dark and, and have a good overall day if you start early enough. That, at least that's my perspective on getting up early. Yeah, the summer monsoonal flow in Colorado is such that kind of daytime heating gives rise to pop-up storms, usually Mm -hmm. beginning about noon or one o'clock, sometimes earlier. And the goal is to be below timberline before that happens. Mm -hmm. So you've got to allow yourself a window of time, hike up the mountain and then summit and do summit shenanigans and then get down below timberline. And really the the name of the game here is, I mean, rain is uncomfortable, but dealable. The real risk that you're trying to hedge against is lightning. For sure. And having seen ground lightning before and having been in lightning storms, that is not something you want to do often. Now, there are not a lot of fatalities associated with this, but it's it's not a risk that's worth running. And so you want to make sure you don't get hailed on or lightninged on or a really heavy drenching rain that keeps you from going down the proper path. So 
you want to give yourself enough time. That's why people get up early. Now, some people have made almost kind of a virtue out of it where they get up <laughs> like three in the morning and start hiking. And sometimes uh, you have to do that. If, if you know, if you're hiking, you know, 12 miles to the summit. Oh yeah. One you need way, that much time. Then you've got to give yourself that window of time. If it's a, like our Uncompagre hike and it's a four mile hike, you can start out at 7 a.m. and probably be fine. But <laughs> yep. Eric jokes, but I don't like hiking too early. On 14ers, it's a little different, but on 13ers, which I hike quite a bit, group finding is deeply important. And mm -hmm. you've got to give yourself enough window of time to get up the peak, but you also have to see where you're going and how you're going to come back. Getting lost is a real thing. So, and if you're hiking 13ers and you're kind of picking your own route or bushwhacking, you really don't want to scare animals. That's why starting early is a thing. And that's why if you camp at a trailhead, you'll hear people arriving at all hours in the morning to, to hike a mountain. For sure. And what I find interesting about our list, there's a lot of interrelation between all 10 of these essentials. So we talked about number one, start early, but we've already touched on probably four or five other ones yeah. <laughs> just in this first one. Well, so. and the second one is you need to have a plan and stick to it. This was advice given to me about investing, but uh, <laughs> it have, make sure you make a plan when you are rational and before you start hiking about what you're going to do that day. So a lot of people may get to a summit or may get close to the summit and say, oh, that looks interesting over there. Or maybe I'll pick this route. Even though you've done the research on one route, someone may pick another route. And I think it's good to have a plan and stick with it unless there are very, very good reasons to deviate from that. A good example of this is Eric and I, a year ago, hiked Castle and Conundrum Peak. Mm -hmm. And our intention going in was to hike Castle Peak to do the ridge walk over to Conundrum Peak and then to ridge walk back to Castle and then descend that way. We observed a number of people descending from the ridge between Castle and Conundrum Peak. And we thought, well, that might be an interesting way to get down. It was tempting at the time. It was tempting. Um, it wasn't as tempting when we got close to it. And I looked at no, what that not rock at was all. composed of. It looked like <laughs> ball bearings on top of gravel. But that was one where I think we both at the end of that were very happy, even though it was more work to mm -hmm. have reascended Castle. So just something to keep in mind is that sometimes you'll get up on a mountain and you'll be like, oh, I can do this. Or that looks more, <laughs> that looks easier. But it may not be easy because you can't see the entirety of the route or you don't know what lies ahead. Oftentimes you're not thinking as straight when you're hiking and you have a limited view. So if you've got good beta on it from 14ers.com or Jerry Roach or others, tend to stick to that. And I might even go a step further and say, if while you're rational, like you said, Zach, even write down your plan, even have a thought of, okay, I want to be above tree line by this time. I want to be near the summit or at the summit at this time. And then I mean, if you have to stray from it a little bit, probably fair, but at least then you have an idea again, when you're rational of where you expect to be in your hike. So that when you're on the mountain, mountain does weird things to us. Sometimes, like you said, we get tempted to tack on another extra credit 13er or we might be tempted to, you know, fart around at the summit for two hours and, you know, check out all the views or talk with all of our new friends up there. But there's wisdom in 
knowing what you want to do, when you want to do it. And like you said, doing it, planning all that out when you're at home and when all those other temptations are not around and sticking to it, that's, there's a lot of value to that. So you can keep yourself safe. Well, and I think that takes us to our third essential. If you happen to write it down, then <laughs> uh, leave such a plan with somebody else. For so sure. I always leave my plan with my, my wife and with my aforementioned dad. And I make sure I specify what route I'm taking, where you will find my car so that in the event that I'm late or I don't check in when I'm, when I've completed my hike, this goes especially for solo hikers, but mm -hmm. also for pairs that somebody knows where I'm, where I'm at and what I should be doing. And that's all the more reason why you should relatively stick to your plan. And especially if nightfall comes and they haven't heard from you or, or they try to reach out to you, they can't get a hold of you, then that might be their cue. Okay, something might be going on and we might need to take some action. And so there's, there's definitely wisdom in having someone that isn't going with you have your plan so that you're covered. Someone can check on you. Exactly. Yeah. And in the event of that, if you have a plan, you can put it in the front seat of your car. So if search and rescue needs to come and get you, they can see that on your on the front seat of your car too. Yeah, that's a great call. Well, to go along with that, our fourth point would be <laughs> perhaps paradoxically, <laughs> counter to everything we just said, you should be willing to be flexible. This will come more naturally the more you hike. You will kind of learn what you can and can't include, where you can deviate from your plan. So I've been known to, to go bag that extra 13er, but that's it's still within the realm of what I thought I might do for that day. So I tend to be overambitious and say, these are the things that I'm going to do this day. I'm going to hike four peaks in one day or five peaks. And then if I get three, I just get three. I'm scaling back. I'm not adding two with a plan like that. But yeah, you've got to be willing to be flexible. Sometimes the route that you thought was going to be good or that was going to go doesn't go. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you run into a little bit of weather early on that makes you change course. Sometimes you run out of water and you need to go find a creek and that takes time. Purify some water. So those things all come up and you've got to be flexible, but you try to stay within kind of the, the realm of what you had thought about before. As my buddy Travis would say, the mountain doesn't care. So we can have the best laid plans and we should have the best laid plans, but at the end, the mountain's not going to do us any favors. So if it throws a screwball our way, we should be flexible enough to adapt to it and roll with it. Yeah. And the biggest screwball is our fifth essential here, <laughs> which is weather. We've yep. mentioned it once before. You should try to have a good weather report going in. Sometimes the monsoonal flow is, is heavier than others. Some days are wetter than others. There's days where I've started out knowing full well I'm going to hike somewhat socked in. Eric and I hiked San Luis Peak uh, a year ago. <laughs> That's a great example. We didn't even see the summit. Nope, it was that's... so foggy all day, but hey, we got there, right? And that's something to keep in mind is that a weather report is good to know, but even with that, you should know that almost all weather stations are at seven, eight, 10,000 feet. The weather on top of a peak is a different bear. What it's saying may happen at 10,000 feet. It may be stormy at 11 a.m. at 13,500 feet. For sure. And it's nice that the dot com has 
links to the NOAA forecast for each 14er. So that's a good baseline. But to your point, Zach, I would kind of add this along with the weather report. There's also wisdom in knowing how to read the weather that's there on the mountain because, again, it could be very different than what is being forecast at eight, ten thousand feet. When you're at the summit, you really need to look around and see what clouds are around, what direction are they going in? Are they coming towards me? Are they going to skirt around the mountain? Are they going to the summit? And I haven't gotten to the summit yet, so I need to be aware of where the weather's going, but also what it's capable of doing. If it's just going to dump a little rain, it's your point earlier, Zach, we've got our rain jacket, hopefully, if we're prepared, and we'll be ready for that. If there's hail, that's going to be really uncomfortable. You probably don't want to get caught in that, but it depends on what your your tolerance is for that. But if you see lightning or you see dark clouds, like we discussed earlier, you need to get down as quickly and safely as you can. You need to get to below tree line. You need to get to places where there or are trees the that are point. taller than you. <laughs> exactly. And getting below tree line is a one task at that point. And so knowing the weather, knowing what the forecast is, but also reading the weather that's around you is is really going to help you be safe when you're on the mountain. I could not agree more. There's a certain way people will get better at this as they go along too. For sure. Uh, clouds have a look when they're really dark and gray or even black on the inside. Those scare mm-hmm. me. Oh, yeah. Um, and you can see when a, a cloud is just going to bring some light rain or you can kind of figure that out. But that being said, we're not foolproof. And mm-hmm. a lot of the time I've made summit bids thinking, oh, those clouds are not close at all. And then all of a sudden they just materialize out of the ether and they kind of show up and they're a lot denser and a lot wetter than I thought they would be. So all that goes to learning to be flexible and learning how to at least be aware of of your surroundings and where, where things are headed. Absolutely. I may jump the list here a little bit and say that all flows into another point we wanted to make our sixth point, which is Sometimes you have to be willing to not make the summit. Uh, yeah, <laughs> for sure. This, this might be one of the most important ones. I, I, they're all important, but we're not going necessarily in order of importance. But this is critical. I mean, I I tried to hike Columbia several years ago and did it with a hiking partner that was very inexperienced. And we got to within 100, 200 feet of the summit and we started getting hailed on like crazy. And we had to bail. We just couldn't take it. And again... The mountain doesn't care and and the mountain's always going to be there. So much better to live and be safe and not make the summit and try again later rather than put yourself at serious risk and try to get it that day. Yeah. Summit fever is a real thing. Our motivations are all different. Some people, it may be just adding another notch to the belt, right? Putting mm-hmm. another one on the list, that achievement, that is a real thing for some of us. Maybe just the desire to go to that next ridge and just see the the next thing. For some, it may be, you know, I told myself I would do this. And there's this kind of sense of duty almost to yourself to do it. Or if you're hiking with partners, it's like, well, they're going, I should go too. But you've got to be willing to turn around. And I've never turned around and regretted it. I've turned That's around a and, great and point. wished I hadn't had to. But Every time I've turned around, I've thought, you know, that probably was, it was the right call at the moment. Now, there's been times where I've turned around like 
I'll see a peak and it's socked in and clouds are black and they look terrible. And I'm like, I got to get out of here. Mm-hmm. And I turn around and then an hour later, it's sunny and clear. It's and bright like, and sunny. I could have gone up that, but you know, you have to go with what you know at the moment. Absolutely. And you have to not beat yourself up about it because hiking in the mountains is about living to fight another day. And, you know, like you said, mountains always going to be there. Couldn't agree more, Zach. That's a perfect one. That goes to maybe another point, which is highly related, which is to know your risk tolerance. Absolutely. Sorry to sound like Socrates here, but you should <laughs> should know yourself and know what, know what you can and can't do. This is especially true hiking with groups where there may be a little pressure to, to get to the summit, but knowing beforehand what, what you're capable of and not, and this is part of making a plan. When you make that plan to hike Mount Lindsay and you say, I can do the class two gully to the top, but I can't do the class three ridge. And if I look at that class two gully and it's garbage, then may not be my day that day. That's something you need to know kind of going in. Just be aware of what you're capable of. And of course, with wrist tolerance, you can always push it a little bit, but you, mm-hmm. but you need to know where your lines are as a person. And that's different for everybody. Stuff that I see other people do, I can't do. I'm not going to do a cartwheel across the knife edge ridge on Capitol Peak. <laughs> so... You know, but some people are comfortable with that kind of stuff. So you have to know where your limits are. And hopefully that's it goes into the planning process. Yep. Well, and I appreciate you mentioning Lindsay without judging the the one of the three that didn't make it. So so what Zach's alluding to, Zach, myself, and my buddy Travis all hiked Lindsay several years ago before it closed. And Zach and Travis made it up. And I got sketched out right at the top of the gully. It just, it was too much for me. So to Zach's point, I didn't know my my risk tolerance. And at that point, it was, I'm not going any further. And I had to be comfortable with that. Even though I had two friends that I was with that were comfortable going all the way, I had to let them know, hey, you guys go. You guys got this. I'm going to hang back. I'm going to live to fight another day. And hopefully someday Lindsay opens up again and I can give it another shot. But that day wasn't for me. Turns out you may have had the best view. You sat on this perch for about an hour mm-hmm. while while we summited and we had bluebird weather and you got to kind of enjoy a delightful snack up there. But um, it was, it was nice. Yeah. So this may kind of go along with some of what we've been saying too, which is our eighth essential, just to dress appropriately. You'll know what this is with weather. Oftentimes this is, if you're starting early, this is going to mean layers. It's going to be cold in the morning. You may work your way up to shedding layers as you go on through the day, but you need to have appropriate clothing for what you're going to encounter, which probably means some combination of whatever you like to hike in, as well as your rain gear. But from the get-go, you don't want to be cold to start, and you don't want to be sweaty to end because it might be cold and wet. So try to have right kind of clothing in mind, I would say in general. Another one of my dad's kind of commandments is don't wear cotton. Dry fit, polyester, that kind of stuff is great, even as your underwear. I have waterproof socks with me at all times too, wool hat, but cotton, just stay away from it altogether. And for those that don't know, cotton gets wet and stays wet. 
Exactly. And That's one of the reasons you don't want it. It's going to shape even more. The only thing I have cotton for is I have a little do rag. And sometimes if it's hot in the afternoon, I dip it in a stream and that cotton stays nice and wet. And I can mm-hmm. kind of put it on my head or put it on my neck and keep me cool. But for everything else, yeah, it's wear things that are synthetic material, shed moisture, and that have a tighter weave so that if it is windy, you can kind of walk through that. But again, I tend to overpack for dressing, but I think it's really important that you start out warm and finish dry. That's a great call. And that leads into a good number nine for us, which is have the right stuff in your pack, which we kind of alluded to a couple episodes ago when we talked about the gear that we have in our packs. But if you're doing winter hiking, that might include micro spikes and crampons and an ice axe. Or if you're doing summer hiking, you're going to want to leave all those things behind and you're going to want extra water. So just being prepared for what you actually need for the hike you're doing. Yeah. I love a self-reference. So number nine, go back to episode three. <laughs> uh, yeah. Have self-promotion. Have the right stuff in your pack. Call me Deuter. <laughs> So yeah, I think it's important to have the right materials in your pack and be prepared, rain gear, map, whatever else you think you're going to need for the day. And then drum roll, Eric, what's our 10th essential? I think you suggested the possibility that we maybe have a whole other episode on this. Number 10, eat appropriate to what you need for the hike. So maybe this is another running joke that you and I have. My food generally consists of trail mix and snack bars. And that's it. I don't care anything else. Eric squirrel food. I, I'm a bird. And then, uh, Zach, when you, you like to reward yourself, rightfully so, at the summit with good carnivore food. And what was, so we summited the Buffalo Peaks. Mm-hmm. You had this hybrid fruit thing, like an apra peach or a, a tangricot or something what in the world was that thing? Oh, it was a it was a apricot mixed with a plum in aprium. Aprium. Yeah, was not a plum cot, not to be confused a, with a plum cot. Yeah, not a plum cot. Right. <laughs> that yeah. was so good. And so so for me there's two parts to eating appropriate to what you need. There's the before. So I wake up hungry and For those of you that don't know, it's really hard to digest fats Mm -hmm. at altitude. Your body, especially if you're moving a lot, you don't want to use what little oxygen you have to break down fats at altitude, Mm -hmm. which requires a little bit more metabolism. And so if you're going to have fat and you want your body to use fat as an energy source, you need to have that in the morning. So a lot of the time, what that means for me is I'm going to try to load up on carbs and fat, which is oatmeal with maybe some peanut butter or some coconut oil or something in it. And then I'm also going to try to hydrate before I get going. So I try to drink at least a half liter of something. Sometimes it's a little bit of tea. I don't do caffeinated teas because caffeine dehydrates me a little bit. Mm -hmm. So try to get as much in you in the morning as you can without overwhelming your body and overcarbing yourself. So for me, that's slow burning carbs like oatmeal, stuff that's low in glycemic index, then some fats, let your body start metabolizing those when you're at lower altitude, kind of working. 
And then throughout the day, I'll have little snacks. I take a banana with me or an aprium. Cliff bars are good for this. They have a good blend of short chain fats as well as carbohydrate and even some sugars. And then when you get to the summit, you can have a little bit of fat there to keep you going. I always like to bring a little salami along with me or something like that. So make sure you eat what you need because there is nothing worse than what hikers refer to as bonking. Your glycogen stores are, are kind of wiped out quickly and it's really hard to replenish those at altitude. You want to be full on glycogen before you get going. And there might even be some value in even going the night before and having you may not necessarily want to like carbo load as if you're going to run, you know, a half marathon or something, but having a fair amount of carbs the night before, giving your body the ability to digest those overnight. And then as you start hiking, you, your body can pull from that energy store as it's going might be a nice way to kind of start things off in addition to having a sensible breakfast, like you said, Zach, and then having the right snacks along the way. Yeah. Some people can't eat first thing in the morning. And I get that. So that means you're just going to, you're going to have to nibble as you go along like mm -hmm. Eric does with his, his squirrel food, <laughs> my, my bird feed. Yeah. But having something the, the night before, and if you're on a multi-day hiking trip where you're hiking a peak a day, it's really important that you replenish in the evening fats and carbohydrates so that the next morning when you wake up, you're not in deficit already. That's an important element up front. So are there any kind of overall themes to thinking about the essentials of hiking here, Aaron? Yeah, at least in my mind, number one would be live to fight another day. We've mentioned it a few times here, live to fight another day, live to hike another day. Mm -hmm. And a lot of this is, is in the name of safety. Most hiking trips do not end in anything bad. Most do not become problematic at any point. Most are fine, even people that get themselves in trouble occasionally are fine. But the risk reward scenario is super asymmetric on hiking. A good day of hiking is a normal day. A bad day of hiking is a terrible day. And yeah. to get stuck overnight in sub-freezing temperatures is a bad scenario. A lot of this is just to prevent those kind of black swan tail risk kind of events that you really want to avoid. And if you know yourself, if you know the plan that you've developed and you know how to be safe on the mountain, you're going to have a much, much better chance of having a good day or at least not having a terrible day, like you mentioned, Zach. And having good days well in your your later years. Yeah, <laughs> good call. <laughs> we are not James Dean living fast and leaving that's, a good, uh, happy corpse. That's right. So yeah, I think safety self-awareness, as you mentioned, and then flexibility, as we talked about, not to sound paradoxical, but flexibility within a plan. <laughs> no, it completely makes sense. And I think most that have hiked multiple 14ers, have been doing it for a while, probably know what we're talking about there. There's, there is definitely a balance in working within what we have planned out, but also knowing that we're not in control and we need to kind of flex that's certainly one of the sub-themes that I've always had with hiking is that part of the beauty of hiking is being in an environment where you're not in full control. For so sure. much of Western domestic life is, is having a controlled <laughs> environment and part of hiking is surrender. Good philosophical way to wrap us up, Zach. But what do you think? 
How early do you start when you're trying to get up the mountain? And just how many paradoxes can we throw into this episode anyways? Send us a note at greensandbluespodcast at gmail.com and let us know. So Zach, what do we have on the docket for our next episode? Our next episode, we're going to be talking about the five easiest 14ers. So perhaps 14ers that we would suggest to a friend, as I often do, if they want to begin the hiking quest. This won't be our typical peak-oriented podcast where we talk about what goes into each peak, but rather what makes each peak easy enough to Mm. be a beginner hike. I like it. I see it enough on forums and pages. People are posting, hey, what's the easiest 14er that I can do in a quick weekend while I'm visiting? And we'll throw our insights in there and hopefully it makes sense. Maroon bells in April, all day, every day. Sounds perfect. Yep. I love crumbling under that rock. Do it when it's slushy and Mm -hmm. the snow has lost its pack. That is the time to knock that one out. Yep. Sounds perfect to me. My risk tolerance will allow me to do that. Well, thank you all for listening and we'll see you next time.